Let's find common ground. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Florian Glatz, founder of Common Ground, the place to build communities and connect with like-minded people in Web3. Today, I'm talking to Tiago Sada, head of product engineering and design at Tools for Humanity. Tools for Humanity is the key contributor to WorldCoin, a global identity project that was co-founded by OpenAI's Sam Altman. Welcome to Finding Common Ground, your gateway to the digital revolution in community building, cooperative governance, and collective ownership. Join us as we explore the future of humankind in the 21st century with thought-provoking conversations featuring innovators, pioneers, and visionaries from around the globe. Let's embark on this journey together, bridging divides and reimagining our collective future. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and ignited. Let's find common ground. Thiago, it's a huge pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Conversation. Awesome. Thiago, I'm sure there's a lot more to say about you as a person. And so I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself in your own words, the way you please. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think you just gave like a very fancy title that doesn't really mean anything. Uh, in practice, what I do is uh, I, I oversee a bunch of the of the software that uh, that we build at TFH to make the, the WorldCoin project possible. And so we can talk about these components uh, later on, but things like the app, uh, the world app that users are signing up with, the app that operators use, the SDK for developers, the protocols, things like that. Uh, I, I work with a bunch of teams uh, doing that. Um, before that, uh, I'm actually originally from Mexico. I, I grew up in, in Mexico City, uh, lived there most of my life. I just, uh, Growing up, I started building robots with friends. Through that, I was able to get a scholarship to study college in the U.S. So I went to the U.S. to study computer science and robotics engineering. Um, actually, ended up dropping out halfway through to start a startup with the same friends I used to build robots with. Turns out that was just more fun. Um, we we went through YC with that, and that's actually how I originally met Sam. And then uh, my we went different directions. I eventually uh, sold my startup and did a bunch of random stuff. And then uh, I heard about WorldCoin about two years ago. I, I joined the project uh, to help out with a bunch of things. Okay, cool. So uh, a really interesting background that you have and um, clearly some hardware element in this, which I think is crucial also to WorldCoin's mission. We'll touch uh, on that in a moment. But before we get there, um, I like to ask my guests about their personal journey into Web3 slash crypto. And um, so Web3 is quite a rabbit hole. And once you end up in it, it's really hard to get out or think about anything else. And uh, so I would love to hear how you sort of found this Web3 world and um, how you got here. Well, I, you could say I come from the dark side. Uh, my, my startup was a fintech in Mexico. And so what we were doing was very similar to something like Alipay for Latin America where you could have peer-to-peer -peer payments, QR payments in stores, you could pay your bills, phone top-ups, things like that. Right? And so when we were building that, this was during 2017, 2018, there was a bull market and blockchain was like the buzzword. Right? And like all investors would ask us, like the first thing is like, are you using blockchain for your startup? And like the first time we thought about it, we discussed it and like actually back then it did not make sense to use a blockchain for something like we were doing. Like we were doing real-time payments in the emerging market. You wanted something that's super cheap, super fast. Maybe today you could do that with an L2 or something like that, but back then it didn't make sense. 
And so I actually had to get really good at explaining why blockchains did not make sense. <laughs> and so once I was not working on that and I had some mental space, um, I kept having like random ideas of things to build next. And a bunch of them were things that they made sense, but not in a world where like crypto succeeded, right? Or like, this is a really good idea, but if crypto works out, actually you would build this in a different way. And so I hit that wall a couple of times and I eventually just said like, you know what, like I need to, then I need to like sort of make up my mind, right? Like will crypto work or not? Because if it does, then I should just be doing that instead. And if it doesn't, then I should just build these things and like bet that crypto won't pan out. And so where in the past I had approached crypto from like the tokens perspective and like trading and things like that. And the idea of buying coffee with Bitcoin never really resonated with me. Uh, the second time around through a friend, I actually ended up uh, getting through the smart contracts and Ethereum route of things, just thinking about things as protocols and tokens just being, uh, yes, sometimes they can be a values of exchange, but other times they can have different functions, right? And so through that, I got into the rabbit hole and I was just fascinated by both the technology and the values uh, and, and just how ultimately you could build just objectively superior products with crypto, right? When you have things like, the composability of Ethereum, you don't really need to care about decentralization. It's just you can build the same product in three weeks instead of in three months or three years that you would in like the old world, right? And so that I think is undeniable. And so that's really what got me into the rabbit hole. And then from there, a um, bunch of different things. And then for random things in life, I ended up at WorldCoin as well. Do you already know Common Ground? Common Ground is a new kind of social network that is owned by its users and that brings the benefits of Web3 to communities. Be part of it now. You'll find the link in the description. So interesting. And uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Ethereum and I love that you mentioned it because it's really this uh, new platform really to build on and it solves the decentralization problem for you in a sense, at least for applications and those kinds of things. So I totally get your perspective on this. And... Um, now, you're at, at this WorldCoin project, and um, obviously now uh, WorldCoin is, I think, leveraging Ethereum even um, as part of its infrastructure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, crypto is still far away. Um, I don't know if you agree, but it feels far away today, at least, from mainstream adoption. Um, I can say that you know my, my own family like uh, doesn't really use it. I'm the only one who's really doing on-chain transactions uh, every day and so on. So it seems like normies are not yet really using it. Um, what do you believe uh, will be this sort of breakthrough moment for crypto? What, what does it take? How will we get there? What's your, what's your perspective on it? Well, I mean, there will certainly have to be a catalyst, right? There will be some specific use case or some specific application that will just be the thing that takes it mainstream. I think it's very difficult to predict what that is. It might be WorldCoin, it might be something else. But uh, I would say I've actually been surprised when you take a very opinionated approach to building consumer level user interfaces on top of the primitives that already exist. I think we're actually much farther ahead than people think. Uh, the problem isn't really that Uniswap, for example, is not useful for normal people is that having to use it through the same tools that we use because we want control over every single thing and we want to understand every single thing that we're signing. And um, 
that is that is a part that I would argue is the most broken. And so a lot of the thinking that we that we have to do in our day to days is not just okay, how do we get the technology to a point where it's actually scalable and ready for for mass consumption, but actually just how how do you shape products, whether it's uh, on on what you include, but most importantly on what you don't include on those products to actually build use cases and, and shape the use cases that that make a lot more sense for people. Right? And so I think. Having said that, there will have to be some like boom moments, some big bang, where some application that happens to use crypto behind the scenes to give some new sort of value to the world that hasn't been possible before, and then everything will go from that. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting perspective, and in, in terms of your feeling for that, is that going to be you know more likely to be, let's say, in gaming, or is that more likely mm-hmm. going to be in something more financial, like? you know, stable coins, many people say that's actually the breakthrough innovation behind crypto. Where do you, where's your feeling where it's more likely going to be? Yeah, for sure, super super bullish on stable coins. I think that just the mental effort or the mental leap to get people to start paying things with different currencies, like it might come, but I think that a lot of the benefits of crypto, both philosophical and technological, we can get with stable coins, right? As long as they're built in the right way. And so being able to just keep paying with Mexican pesos when you go and buy a Coke, like that is so, so valuable for people. And denominating your savings in Mexican pesos, uh, you can still get a lot of the benefits um, from, from, from this new world. And so I do think that stable coins are a really important innovation when it comes to DeFi. Uh, look, I don't know if a finance app will go viral, right? Like, yeah, maybe a game could go viral. Um, we'll see. Um, I do think that from a growth model perspective, though, uh, which I don't think we've gotten right as a, as a crypto ecosystem, but the idea of using tokens to bootstrap networks, I do think is very powerful, right? When you go back to fundamentals and you start thinking like, okay, what would have happened if a Uber competitor was giving equity to like to their drivers, right? You can definitely see how that would bootstrap an Uber competitor. And so I do think that just from a growth model perspective, just like SEO was a thing at some point, and as we're, I think at some point, I do think that bootstrapping networks um, will be a very big deal and tokens just make that a lot easier. Right? So for very famously, Airbnb even tried giving their hosts equity when they were IPOing. It was just too complicated to do and so they weren't able to do it. But uh, that might also just end up being one of the most important consequences that enables crypto to get adoption. I couldn't agree more, actually, at uh, Common Ground, which is the platform that I'm building. We're having exactly this vision of building a social network where the equity is as much as possible equally distributed among the users who use that social ne- platform, right? And um, I, it's, it's how you would bootstrap, uh, let's say, a Facebook competitor in uh, in this new world, right? But then... Uh, there is a lot of trust, I think, that we have to make up for, um, given all the recent developments in the space where I just hear so many people being critical about crypto and its and its value proposition just because we've had so many bust cycles now that it's sort of, yeah, it's an uphill battle, I think, to make people trust this this narrative that it's, 
it's for something good and not just for people enriching themselves. That's that's my personal experience when I talk to people. Yeah, I think we're, we're just going to have to get to a point where a token is like a website, right? There's good websites and bad websites and websites perform different functions and tokens are the same, right? I think like the word cryptocurrency is very tricky because it implies that every token is the same and that every token is meant to be a medium of exchange, right? And so I think that's where we lose a lot of people. When you But when you get into the nuance of, yeah, some websites on the dot-com bust were like scammy or didn't make sense and other ones made a lot of sense. It's the same thing with tokens, right? You just need to like, uh, we need to cut through the noise and just be able to talk about pro- individual projects on their own and individual tokens of their own rather than just this basket of cryptocurrencies. Do you have sort of an explanation of, so some people say that, well, crypto is not a young technology anymore. It's been around for over a decade. Um, if there was a use case, you guys should have found it by now. There clearly isn't one. Do you have a good reason of why it just takes so long to to find this? Or do you think it's actually it's actually normal? What, what's your feeling on that? Well, I actually do think that just the technology was not ready for mainstream for a long time. Like it was an R&D problem. Um, even, even something like Rollcoin would not have been possible two years ago with the state of crypto. Uh, things like volumes that you can process, the speed of transactions, there's just very basic things that make it, it, it's very difficult to even get feature parity with current systems, whether you're talking about finance or gaming or identity. Um, with all of these things, crypto systems were clearly inferior. And so I think we're getting to a point of technical maturity where we can now at least have feature parity. And then now it's a conversation of, okay, now let's show up all of the power, right? Um, that this is global by default, this is digital by default, and what are the implications of those? I think we're just starting to get to that point, but the technology just wasn't ready. Just like smartphones were technically a thing before the iPhone, but like they weren't really a thing until the iPhone because the tech wasn't there yet. Mm, I like that point. Um, let's talk about Worldcon a little bit because there's just so much to discuss and we don't have too much time. So I um, want to segue into this. Now, to all the listeners who don't know WorldCoin, this is a very widely discussed project in the crypto space at the moment, at least in my bubble. <laughs> I don't know if it's like that for everybody. And um, quite controversially so. There are people who believe the project is building important infrastructure that will power the next generation of applications in finance and beyond. And there are people who believe that WorldCoin is pursuing a fundamentally flawed idea that carries all kinds of risks and abuse for potential uh, potential for abuse. Um, I'll be impartial in this interview. What I really want to do is give you, Thiago, a chance to answer some questions, give your vision on this project while you're working on it. And um, my first question in that sense would be to you, what is your vision for WorldCoin? And of course, what is WorldCoin in the first place? And how do you see it evolving over the next five to 10 years, maybe? Yeah. Oh, quite, quite a question. Uh, let's just get started. So I think to understand WorldCoin, you have to understand why it started in the first place. And uh, so WorldCoin started around four years ago. Uh, it was uh, co-invented by Sam uh, at OpenAI. And, and what happened back then was when they were working on all the cool stuff that we're now getting to play with, all of the GPTs and, and different models, it became very clear to Sam that regardless of whether it was going to be open AI or someone else, advanced AI was coming, number one, and it was coming much sooner than people expected. So some people said it was never going to come, other people said it would, but in 50 years, 
And, and what Sam uh, at least believed back then was like, no, this is a five to 10 year type of thing. And that's going to be the most powerful technology we will probably ever build as, as humanity. It's going to come with new questions, right? And so just like the internet gave us a bunch of new benefits, it also had new challenges that we had to tackle, right? Or just different, even philosophical questions that we have to ask ourselves, okay, how do we want to approach this as, uh, as a society? And so there's a couple of those that are particularly interesting. Number one is when you, how do you democratize something like advanced AI systems, right? And what I mean by that is how do you make sure everyone has fair access to it, right? Because it's super unfair if only a few people get the, the superpowers, but others don't. Uh, but number two, if these are truly such powerful models, how can you start thinking about decentralizing or democratizing their governance right, and their control? So that was one bucket of things. Uh, a second bucket of things is the economic bucket, right, which is very important. There's clearly going to be some transition period between the jobs of today and the jobs of tomorrow. And, and there is a question of okay, how can you make that transition as smooth as possible? And, and more importantly, even in that new world, right, like all of this economic value that is generated by AI systems, how do you distribute that fairly? Right? And I think that uh, things like UBI might be an answer to both of those problems. Right? And then the third bucket of things is what we call proof of personhood, which is, well, in a world where every, anything can be faked online, how do you know who and what to trust? Right? How do you know if these 20,000 Twitter accounts are 20,000 people or 20,000 bots with just like some guy in a basement with, a, with an LLM? And so when you think about all of those problems, the, the intersection is really two things, right? It is number one, identity, digital identity. And number two, it is digital money. And a lot of times people ask me like, hey, is Wallcoin about money or about identity? It's both, right? Because yes, at its core, it's going to be hopefully the largest network of real people, just like Facebook is a network. But then just like in Facebook, one of the native... Uh, operations that you can do is send pictures or send chats. Uh, in WorldCoin, we believe that sending uh, money is a very important primitive. Because when you solve those two problems, when you have digital identity that is provable, especially online, and, uh, and you have digital money that you can transact with, whether it's between people or with digital systems, you actually have the tools to tackle these three problems that we really care a lot about but then also a bunch of other problems, both future problems and just very mundane problems of today, right? Like something as simple as like, how do you give people a free trial for your software without them double dipping? And so Volcom really started with saying, okay, let's solve these problems. And, uh, and the really crazy idea back then was to say, okay, let's start by just making a, a cryptocurrency that every person can claim a part of simply for being a human, right? And that will force us to solve the personhood problem. It also allows us to have this asset that was distributed in a fair way, you can then use that token uh, to actually then govern this, the, the network itself. Right? And so this thing that we were talking about, bootstrapping the ecosystem, uh, the, the, the token is both useful, but uh, like after bootstrapping, but also to bootstrap the network. Right? And, uh, and we started working on this. The, the trickiest problem was solving the personhood problem. Was, uh, like it turns out that actually proving that someone is a real person uh, in a way in which they cannot cheat is a very difficult problem. And so we tried a bunch of things from the beginning. We started with things like email or phone verification. It turns out like those are obviously too easy to cheat. Then we moved over to try things like KYC, right? Which, um, which a bunch of financial providers use around the world. 
But it turns out that's not just not private at all, which we didn't like. Uh, it just doesn't scale. It's not inclusive. It's not fraud resistant at all. And more than half the population doesn't have an ID that you can verify digitally. And so after that, we looked at things like uh, Web of Trust, which are really interesting systems. You just happen to need a really large set of users you can trust initially. And so Rollcoin might just end up scaling with Web of Trust. We'll see. And at the end, uh, we just realized that the fundamental answer was biometric, right? At the end of the day, uh, the most reliable way to distinguish humans between each other today is biometrics. And so then we had to tackle the challenge of, okay, how can you uh, verify biometrics in a way that is scalable, in a way that is privacy preserving, uh, and in a way that is just actually feasible to do. Right? Um, and so we did like two years of R&D, and out of that came a device that's uh, very famous on Twitter. It's called the Orb. Uh, and it's, it's a really cool device. We can talk about that more for a bit. On top of that, we built a, a protocol that is called World ID. It's a decentralized identity protocol that actually allows you to use these attestations. Um, and then on top of that, we build an app called World App, which basically takes all of this cool technology and merges it with Ethereum. And it actually is like a friendly, useful consumer software product that people can use today uh, without having to understand everything else, but preserving the self-custody, preserving the privacy, preserving the decentralization, all of these different properties of the system. And so that is where we're at today. WorldCoin is still in beta, uh, and we can talk about what that beta has been like. Uh, we are getting close to launch. Uh, so far in the beta, about 1.7 million people have uh, signed up uh, using an ORP. And, um, and yeah, so we can dive into any part of, of this that you are excited to hear about. And, um, and yeah, excited to launch in general. Wow. So that's a mouthful. Um, to repeat, you have um, been, Sam has seen the problem that comes with AI in terms of proving that you're actually a human. This will become necessary now with what OpenAI is building and I think other quite capable companies as well as the open source space at this point, which has also become quite sophisticated, I believe. To tackle this problem, you realize there is actually no other way of proving one's humanness than to do it through a biometric process. And so as a result of this, you've developed this unique hardware called the ORB that can be used to uh, do this verification process. You mentioned that uh, UBI would be a potential use case for this. More broadly, what are, your, what are the use cases that you are most excited about? And maybe in terms of the UBI, can you give us an idea of how UBI could run on this, on this uh, WorldCoin platform? Well, I think that you can think of the WorldCoin ecosystem in general as infrastructure for UBI, right? Uh, we wouldn't call... Uh, the, the ongoing uh, token distribution in certain countries, a UBI, because like it's just like not something you can live off, right? And it's not designed to be that. Um, that is a separate, uh, that is to decentralize the network. Uh, but fundamentally, right, what we're doing is we're putting in everyone's hands uh, a self-custodial wallet that runs on Ethereum and a self-custodial ID, which starts with a proof of personhood. And so with those tools, any government, nonprofit, for-profit company that wants to distribute value can use those rails to issue UBI with different rules. Right? And so someone could take these primitives and say, you know what, every month, uh, anyone that is a real person can claim $10 from this bucket of cash, right? And so you're able to uh, trustlessly 
uh, execute that, that airdrop in a way in which you know you're not going to get defrauded, but at the same time preserves the privacy of the people. Right? And so we're building that infrastructure. And look, I think that in some cases, it'll be governments that, uh, that can do, not just UBI, I think that's like the highest part of things, right? But even um, just regular social welfare programs, right? Uh, there is uh, generally not infrastructure around the world. And you're not just talking about the poorest countries, you're talking generally in the world uh, it's very common for people to either not have a bank account or not have an ID that you can uh, use digitally. In terms of solving unique problems, um, how does, I mean, you've answered it in a sense, but um, just to reiterate on this, you said that uh, WorldCoin solves this problem of proof of humanity and in your research you found that there is no other potential system to solve this now um there are some people who indeed believe in this web of trust uh approach there are people who talk about social verification so i've talked to uh, clement uh from proof of humanity who's building this they they are of a different opinion do you think there is a difference of opinion or are you actually of the same opinion here? Where, where is the real different perspective here? Maybe you can help me to understand. No, for sure. So I think something that's very important to, to highlight, which I sort of brushed over, is the orb, essentially this device that can issue you this proof of personhood. Right? Um, but fundamentally, you're right. Like, in fact, in all likelihood, there's some other better way or some other better device than the orb to issue proof of personhoods, right? And so while that is the, the first device that the, that the WorldCoin network supports, the actual protocol itself, which is called WorldID, is agnostic to the type of verification. Right? Like the idea is WorldID is a protocol that allows people to receive proof of personhoods uh, and then use those to accumulate some sort of reputation about themselves and then be able to make statements in a private way about that reputation. And so, for example, the, even if you do say that the best way to go about this is iris biometrics, which from our research, that's what we think nowadays. Uh, you probably want to have a bunch of people doing that, not just one company, right? And so actually the way, one of the really important steps to decentralizing the network is there has to be other companies or other nonprofits that are issuing their own iris verification credentials on the protocol that uh, don't use the orbs. Right? And so this is actually part of why the orb hardware is open source it's not just for transparency, it's to help others uh, bootstrap their efforts of building other devices. Now, that's not just true for alternative iris verification devices, that's also true for alternative methods of verification. So for example, today the protocol already supports, uh, the first additional signal that it supports is phone number verification. Because there's very clearly much less friction in verifying an SMS than in going to a device and verifying your biometrics. And for certain use cases, if you've verified a phone number, that's enough. So now the question is everything, everywhere between phone number and orb, right? Uh, there's a lot of space to explore there. And there's, we as DFH are doing a lot of explorations there. And um, I think that Web of Trust is a really interesting idea. It's just, we believe it's not feasible or we, from, from, our, from our research, we don't believe it's feasible until you have a really large set of users you can trust. So you could even make an argument that the best way to bootstrap a Web of Trust is to have a bunch of users use the orb and then you use those to then build a web of trust on mm -hmm. top of. But yeah, I'm sure there's now there's new ideas like privacy preserving KYC or a bunch of different methods. 
And, and hopefully what we will see is uh, you can start getting all of these different types of attestations through the world ID protocol. And at the end of the day, we will see, right? We will see what uh, ended up being the strongest signal. Having said that, while the protocol is agnostic, at least us as TFH, we are quite focused on the biometric verification because after three years and some change of trying a bunch of different other things, we just think this is the only thing that is private, that scales, that is fraud resistant, that just checks all the boxes. And so we actually have a blog post uh, on the website. It's called um, Humanist in the Age of AI. So people are curious to read like a quite technical walkthrough of different things that we've tried uh, that's available there. Interesting answer. So what I derive from this is that from your point of view, the real important part of WorldCoin is the protocol. It's not really necessarily this ORP device that you are currently using to create these attestations of proof of humanity. It's actually, um, there could be a range of different providers using different methods to contribute to this protocol, which is then in some sense available to organizations, governments, and anyone else who needs this reliable infrastructure of unique people that they can address for different applications. Is that is that a, a right understanding? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair, fair understanding. Again, I I don't want to take a cop out and say like the orb is not important. Like, no, we we think the orb is a is a fundamental answer, at least the best one that we found today, which is why we spend a lot of time, you can imagine that making hardware and taking it around the world is not super easy. Uh, but we are, but we also believe that it's important that on a protocol level, the protocol is neutral, the protocol is agnostic, and the protocol is open to our small team being wrong, right? And so hopefully, and actually, yeah, over the coming weeks and months, we, we should start seeing a bunch of other people issue attestations on the protocol. Let's talk about protocol governance then for a moment, because um, it then in this case then it shouldn't be necessarily you, Worldcoin, who decide who gets to be an accreditation entity on this protocol. There probably should be some sort of uh, I don't know DAO maybe or some other kind of body that decides who is trustworthy, I suppose, to be allowed to issue these certificates on the protocol how what's your plan there and is that in any way linked to this worldcoin foundation that was recently uh launched worldcoin was originally invented uh or conceived inside of tfh right this is the this is the company or the startup that sam and alex co-founded um, a few years ago since then a bunch of other companies nowadays also contribute to the protocol and what has happened, uh, and it's an ongoing process, is all of the IP and all of the governance, things like the treasury, anything that should belong to the protocol rather to a specific company, either has already or is in the process of being transferred from TFH to the Worldcoin Foundation. The Worldcoin Foundation is a nonprofit uh, that is independent. The mission is to scale the Worldcoin protocol. And one of its most important tasks is to figure out the governance fit. Um, now, realistically, that probably means trying to minimize the governance that is required in the first place, right? Um, but then for the few things that do require governance, um, the foundation will be the one setting up those uh, those mechanisms. Now, it'll be an interesting challenge, right? Because um, there's when you're trying to build a network with everyone in the world in it, 
there's just like not really been, not just in DAOs, but in general governance challenges at that scale. So a really cool thing is that, yes, you have the Rollcoin token as a primitive uh, that might help you facilitate things in governance, but you also for the first time have the primitive of proof of personhood. Right? And so you can start doing things like one person, one vote, conviction voting, or you can start mixing up things and do quadratic voting. So this opens up the design space uh, of how you can approach the, the governance of such a protocol. But fundamentally, in general, uh, to your question of who can issue attestations, actually anyone should be able to issue attestations. And so World ID is not just decentralized, it's not just open source, it's actually permissionless. Now, I'm sure there will be layers on top of the protocol, right? Like SDKs that might be opinionated about which credentials um, it exposes to developers or things like that. But at a protocol level, uh, that should be as neutral as possible. Very, very interesting. I'm learning a lot. And um, I feel the time uh, just passing way too quickly. So uh, I have loads of questions. And um, I also asked uh, in my Twitter timeline, because there are so many WorldCoin critics, what their most burning questions are. So I will have a bunch of them also to ask. Um, but before I get there, I just want to um, talk a little bit about the, the, the public perception um, of WorldCoin, which at least it seems mixed. I think there are people who, who love the project. There are people who criticize it harshly. Edward Snowden famously <laughs> tweeted at you saying, don't use biometrics for anything. You know, you're, you're a startup, obviously. I mean, you have some amazing people in there like Sam who who are not doing this for the first time in a sense, but nonetheless, you're a startup and startups make mistakes. From your perspective, what is what are the biggest mistakes you've done so far as a startup? We've made a lot of them. I think that's for sure. Uh, I think perhaps the biggest mistake or the most unfortunate thing is that we just honestly sucked at telling the story for a long time. The project leaked. Uh, at some point, uh, I don't even remember it was last year when it was, we weren't like ready to talk about it. This was, um, and so we just didn't do a good job telling the story. Right? And so I think that as much as we are very confident about things like the privacy guarantees of the system or the decentralization roadmap that we have uh, or the bar that we have for a lot of things across the board, um, perception also does matter, right? And so I think that a lot of the work that we've done um, as a team in the past year or whatever it is, has been just trying, just been getting better at explaining to people what we're doing. And if you still don't like it, that's great, right? Like you don't have to use it, but at least just trying to get people the, the facts right. Because there's honestly just a lot of counterintuitive things, right? Like when you hear they're scanning your eyes to get free crypto, um, like A, that like that sounds a little bit weird. And B, if you're technical, it's actually... The most obvious implementations for something like this are actually incredibly terrifying on a privacy um, on a privacy level, and so it takes actually diving into the technical details and understanding the nuances of how the CK zero knowledge proofs work and how the the protocol is separated from the orb and is separated from the wallet. It takes understanding a lot of nuances um, to see why it's truly privacy preserving, for example. But that is not something that you can always fit in that tweet, right? and so a lot of the work that we've had to do. You just figure out, okay, what is the best way to, to tell this story in different levels of resolution, depending on uh, how deep people want to go. There's a saying in crypto, and it's probably not even emerged in crypto, it's trust, but verify. 
right? And this is something that people like in, in crypto. You can very you can run your own node. You can verify all transactions. In terms of WorldCoin, how can people verify um, that the things you're saying are actually you know the way they are? It's privacy privacy preserving. There's zero knowledge. The hardware, I don't know, isn't wiretapped by the NSA or whatever. Like. What verification opportunities are there for people to do their own research as they like to do? That's a super important question because like this whole Google approach of like, don't be evil just doesn't work, right? Like what works now is it just can't be evil. And so everything that we design, we design it to just make it impossible for us to be evil or us to be dumb, uh, to be honest. And, uh, and so there's, look, I can talk at a very high level. This means like open sourcing as much as possible. Uh, executing as many things as possible on on public blockchains rather than on private servers. Uh, it means having audits. It means a bunch of things like that. Now, specifically, there is a really good blog post uh, on the WorldCoin website. It's called something like Privacy Technical Deep Dive. And at the end, it has a section that is literally how can you verify these uh, these claims. And it's probably like something like 15 to 20 bullet points of just like on a technical level how can you verify all of these different things, right? Whether the monitoring, the networking from the packages, from the orbs, um, a bunch of different things. And so what I would say is uh, that that blog post is, as the title implies, is part one of a series of blog posts. But the bulk of these questions uh, were the most important ones we tried to tackle already in the first one. And so you, people can check that out. Uh, and then any questions, they can just like join the Discord and ask them more or shoot an email or, or shoot a tweet but uh, but it is very important that uh, that you don't have to trust us, actually. A lot of people in the crypto space love to talk about public goods. It's sort of become meme almost. Um, there is obviously Gitcoin that is specialized in public goods funding. It's a huge movement. And um, also me personally, I find it a, a really cool idea. Is in your mind WorldCoin a public good? today or at some point in the future? Is it is it built for that or is it something else? I mean, a hundred percent, right? And I think that that is different from some of the products that tools for humanity might build, right? So for example, there is this app called WorldApp, right? That is the first wallet that is supportive, that supports the WorldCoin ecosystem. That is a product by, by a company. Uh, yes, to push the ecosystem forward, but that will be a for-product product, right? Uh, for-profit product, and that's fine. But... But the WorldCoin project, the, the World ID protocol, the token, like the actual protocol itself, it not just can or should, like that's the only thing it can be to succeed. Uh, if, if, if it's not truly open infrastructure, I mean, I think public goods is, is, is a very new term for it. I would just call it public infrastructure, right? It, it, it's running water. It's a, it's a phone booth on the corner. It's, if it's not like that, then um, then the WorldCoin project fails. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. That's a powerful statement. Now, I want to tie this into the fundraising that you've done recently. Uh, congrats on that, by the way. You've been raising uh, $150 million approximately, I think, uh, closing that round recently in a market that is very tough. I think many many builders envy you for that. How do you fundraise that amount of money for a public good? Or was that for the for-profit parts? How how do you 
how do you square this uh, in, in, in a sense, in a way that is attractive to investors, but does not prevent you from yeah. fulfilling this promise? Uniswap is a real example of this. One of the really cool things about tokens is it allows you to make something into a public good while also using the value of that public good itself to make it possible in the first place. And so, for example, Uniswap, I, I don't remember the exact breakdown, but I think it's something like 49% of the value went to, to the investors that made it possible and to the team that made it possible. And, uh, and 51% of it uh, goes to the world, right? uh, which by 49, 51 makes it a public good. Right? And so from there, you have a gradient of, okay, how much, how public versus how like, much privately held it is. Right? You can imagine even when you like, see a garden on a park, right? it might have like, a stick that says, like, hey, this park is maintained by X or Y company. Right? Uh, that is like giving that company value, right? Like advertising value. That's why they're doing that. But it's still clearly the park is a public good. Right? And so it allows to bring that stick on the yard to, to just technology, right? And digital public goods. And so the, that is what we've seen with generally any type of protocol that has open source or that has decentralized. And WorldCoin is one more of those, right? And so what we're trying to accomplish with the with the way the protocol is set up and we'll have much more uh, to share on like a, a tokenomics post soon is we're trying to maximize the amount of value that can go out to the world rather than the amount of value that is needed to, to make it viable. And so uh, with the project, what we've been able to achieve is something like 75 uh, around that order of magnitude percent of the, of its value can go to the world uh, while only taking 25% of what it will hopefully be worth to make it possible in the first place, right? Now, I think that a lot of times we get questions like, well, why are you raising at like the valuations you are? Well, that's simply because we're trying to maximize the amount of ownership that we can give to the world, right? Like for us, it would be a lot easier to fundraise lower amounts, but then we would have less to give to the world. Uh, so that's one thing that's funny to see. The other one is just always a question of like, well, why 20 or 25 or, or 30 or 40 for other crypto projects rather than zero, right? Well, because we also like need to build the thing, right? And in the case of WorldCoin specifically, that takes R&D, that takes operations in the real world, that takes hardware devices. And so I'm personally super excited. Like if I were to hear that Facebook was 80% owned by its users, I think that's so. Uh, and so that's how the, that's how the fundraising works. Uh, but yeah, we've been super fortunate to work with uh, like great partners that, uh, that believe in the project and uh, we'll be able to maximize uh, all of the value that we'll be able to give to the world. Uh, I mean, just from my personal point of view, also trying to build a public good with common ground, I, I know exactly the issue of wanting to give everything to the world, but then also you need to build it in the first place. It needs capital. So you need to strike a balance. And I, I find if you found this 25-75 split, that's pretty powerful and speaks to your fundraising abilities. So well done on that one. I will go. Th I will jump through a bunch of questions that I've collected um, from I've from Common Ground, where I ask people to give me questions from Twitter. Um, in terms of the algorithms that you're training to recognize whether uh, an iris and a scan of like I, I looked at the data you're scanning. It's not just the iris. You also take some sort of heartbeat and some. A lot of biometric data with this, or are these algorithms going to be part of the public good part, or are they part of the private for profit part, and maybe more broadly the orb itself as a device? Is this 
part of the public good or is it part of the for-profit venture? Yeah, no, it, it's a great question. And first, just to give some context on, on the orb. So the orb has three jobs, right? Um, its first job is actually probably its hardest and is the one that, uh, that is the most underrated, which is just making sure that you're a real person that is alive, that isn't trying to cheat. And so for that, the orb has a bunch of sensors uh, like you're mentioning, like infrared cameras and depth sensors and, and a bunch of things to make sure that you are a real person. Uh, the second task is to actually check for uniqueness, right? which is where uh, it generates your iris code. Uh, and then the third part is actually verifying all of this. Now, the cool thing about the setup of the orb is, and why it took so long to develop, is that all of these different checks uh, can happen on device. So today the orb runs eight different neural networks on device, and there will probably be a lot more soon. And, uh, and so all of these sensor input uh, is actually processed locally on the orb. And by default, the only thing that needs to leave the, the device is that iris code to make sure that you only can verify once. Now, people can optionally check a different box that says, like, help improve Wallcoin by sharing my data. And then your data is encrypted, uh, or some of your data, a lot of it is still deleted. Uh, and then uh, we can use that for training. Uh, but I think it is important to clarify that the default case is that... Uh, all of the sensor data that the, that the orb uses, there's actually a lot of technology that goes into making sure that that doesn't even, doesn't even touch storage if you want to take, get technical. It stays on memory of the device and it gets cleared. Uh, it doesn't even touch the storage of the device. Um, again, this is part of that blog post. But now to get to your question of um, the actual IP, generally speaking, the orb is part of the IP that um, either has or is in the process of being moved to the, to the WorldCoin Foundation uh, part of that and a really important step in that was actually open sourcing the hardware of the orb. And so that, that has a license, which is uh, open source for like responsible use. And so it's something along the lines of the foundation has to actually grant you a license to make um, at least production at scale. But um, the foundation is actually the, the entity that, that will be guarding that. And then it'll be up to the foundation to decide how it wants to download, turn that into, uh, into more of a community governance um, I think. Um, and so, yeah, just like that, essentially any type of important IP for the project uh, will be held by the, by the foundation and the, and the community, uh, essentially. And it includes also the software and the neural nets running on the orb, not just the hardware, it's the whole package. So I, again, I don't know the exact status of each of these things. Uh, so uh, I, I don't want to, to misspeak or mispromise things, but generally speaking, yes. Uh, and also even the software, we're, in, we're working really hard to open source the last few things that are in open source there. Uh, we actually have a blog post also explaining like why it's tricky on a security perspective, but there is a path to, to being able to open source the, the firmware of the orb. Uh, and then from a verifiability perspective, there's monitoring that people can do around that um, so that even if the software isn't, the firmware isn't open source yet, uh, while that process happens, uh, there's checks and balances that the community can have. I want to go through a bunch of attack vectors that people have come up with, how they want to uh, game the system, so to speak, which I guess is valuable. Um, one, one obvious attack vector would be to sort of farm WorldCoin credentials. So um, maybe not too dissimilar, like how you did this initial rollout going to many different places in the world, convincing people to sign up for WorldCoin. That could be, you know, rogue WorldCoin operators or orb operators, I guess how you call them, who just farm a lot of credentials. They don't really give them to the people. They just sort of abuse them. 
And then there's one person with, let's say, 1,000 credentials. It doesn't seem too far out to imagine this. Is there any countermeasure for this or is this just part of the problem and to be accepted? How do you look at this, this kind of attack vector? It is an interesting challenge just of custodial IDs in general, right? Like if I want to like give you my physical passport, I can do that, right? And like in certain cases, you'll be able to use it. We do quite a, quite a few things to make that as hard as possible. Now, the fundamental answer is actually, like if I give you my passport, the reason it might not always be useful to you is because if you try to get somewhere with it, like people will check the picture and they'll be like, no, it's a different person. Or if you go to the airport, they'll actually like check your biometrics or something related to that. Right? And like that's similarly the case with World ID where today the most basic implementation of it is uh, you use a World ID simply by having possession of it. Right? And for like a lot of use cases, in fact, probably for like 80% of use cases, that is sufficient. Actually, like one of the really cool things that we've been working on for a long time for the protocol is the ability to prove that you do not just have custody of a world ID, but you're still the same person in a private way. And so there's two ways you can do that. So that let's say like the low trust, low friction uh, version is you just have custody of it and you can use it, right? And so that's for, I don't know, liking a video on YouTube. Then the second, um, the second degree, let's say like middle friction, but also middle trust would be phase verification. Uh, we've actually been working quite a bit on a flow in which, uh, which will overall very similar to World ID, where locally on device you will be able to take a selfie uh, that will get compared to the um, to to the World ID that was verified by the orb that is only custodied on your device, and so you can prove again in a privacy-preserving way that you are still right now the same person that was got issued this World ID. Now there are potentially some attack vectors when people are taking selfies versus uh, when you're like in a government office, right? and so there is a third which is like the highest level of trust, but highest level of verification as well, which is uh, you can just simply like re-verify your biometrics. Right? So you can imagine like if you want to take out a mortgage, right? Well, the bank uh, or the airport could have uh, a device that allows them, allows it to verify your, uh, your iris, but without them having to receive your iris and without breaking all the zero knowledge proofs, right? It would be really easy to do this in a non-private way, Part of the reason why we haven't rolled out all of these things is because we want to make sure that at every step of the way, just like the ID, all of this data is self-custodial, uh, this process on device, all of these different uh, things. And so on a protocol level, today we're just focused on use cases where having custody of it is sufficient, right? This is why you don't see us promoting people getting a mortgage today with World ID. But as these different components get rolled out that allow people not just to prove that they have custody of the ID, but to re-authenticate on the spot, uh, that really hardens that. Uh, and so it really breaks a lot of these different attack vectors. Yeah, that breaks a lot of uh, attack vectors and answers a lot of other similar questions that I had received, like uh, if a person dies, can someone else use their credential? Well, as long as you just need to show possession of the credential, you can, but as soon as you need to re-authenticate either through a selfie or through um, an actual biometric check, that wouldn't work. So I suppose that answers that. A user I, uh, I really like and respect, uh, Sebastian, he said, uh, he, he wonders whether you're aware of what's called Goodhart's Law, which says that uh, when a measure becomes a target, it stops being a good measure. So uh, I think that means, well, as soon as you take, let's say, irises uh, as a proof for humanity, 
um, they stop being a good proof for humanity because they are a target for people to attack because, I don't know, it gives you UBI, it gives you all kinds of things. Uh, do you think that you're going to suffer from this problem in a major way or has your research led you to believe that this is a measure that is going to stand sort of all these different uh, attempts at attacking it, I, I suppose? One of the reasons why selected or we think that iris biometrics is, is better uh, or is the right path is not just that it fulfills the requirements of its, its tamper proof it's inclusive it has enough entropy but it's actually been like widely studied and widely used for like more than a decade now across the board and so when a lot of governments have used it for a long time a lot of identity systems have used it not in the same private open source and decentralized way in which we're using it Uh, but as a signal, it has been a very robust signal. And so I think that for the foreseeable future, it'll be more than sufficient. And then the good thing is, uh, again, the World ID protocol is, is neutral to that. And so if that needs to be enhanced with uh, or upgraded with, with superior verification methods in the future, there is that upgradability path, right? Um, another really interesting property is your World IDs expire just like your license expires, right? Your driver's license. And so to this question of like, okay, what if, uh, what if people um, die, for example, well, that world ID will just eventually expire, right? And so there's different mechanisms in place to make sure that the, that the system is self-healing. Uh, another very common question is, well, like what happens if one orb gets compromised? Well, it would be a really dumb protocol if it like dies, if one orb gets compromised, because it's hardware uh, at some point, uh, something will slip through, right? And so the really important thing is a protocol Is, uh, is resistant to things like that. And so if for, in, for this specific example, if a, if a specific orb gets compromised, there's actually a mechanism where the community can just simply expire uh, the verifications that were issued by that orb and the people that have role IDs from that simply return to a different orb to get it. Uh, obviously with like common sense, timelines and things like that. But, uh, but the protocol is, uh, is, is, is resistant to this type of, uh, of incidents. Okay, that's that's interesting because it relates to uh, sort of an attack factor that that Clément, um, uh talked about, which is that well, it's sort of just a question of money um, or how expensive it is to to hack an orb and just produce as many Worldcoin IDs as you want in a sense, because the output space is so uh, limited in a sense. You just need to try as many inputs to the orb as as you as you need in order to make it generate valid certificates basically there is it's just it's more of a cost question not really a is it possible question so what you're saying that is that if an orb breaks in that way the protocol would be resilient to this is that is that yeah. correctly understood or yeah okay yeah yeah well okay. i mean i would definitely So I agree that it's something trivial to do, right? Um, but I think the really important part is that uh, if an orb uh, were to get compromised either technically or socially, there are mechanisms to, to be resilient to that. Right? And so one example of that is being able to expire the verification from a specific orb. Uh, now, that's obviously a very important um, a very important decision that like, should not lie in someone random like me, right? but in like, some proper governance process. But um, but generally speaking, I, I do think that the orb is a lot more resilient than, than perhaps some people imagine. One 
widely held criticism that I saw, and I would really be interested in your answer, is the way you've bootstrapped these initial 1.7 million people. There was a pretty negative article by the MIT Technology Review that you've probably seen. Um, they seem to have actually traveled to different places or somehow gotten in contact with places where uh, orbs have been operated and seemingly people were onboarded without actually giving informed consent about what's happening. Um, and it was more like, hey, you get 20 bucks for signing up or whatever, we're giving away AirPods. Like the, the article is pretty detailed. Now, you yourself from Mexico, which is sort of uh, emerging country, let's say. What do you make of this narrative that this has been an abusive process of how you've gotten to these 1.7 million? Is this a fair criticism from your perspective or is this a fundamentally misguided view on, on, on how you've been bootstrapping the network? I mean, I think that what I can say in terms of the article specifically is we actually go on the article itself there's a link somewhere in there to like a 25 page pdf uh, that we that are like the responses that we give to a lot of the questions to the article uh and i would say like those like probably like still stand up like quite well today um i think there's a lot of mis misconceptions or misunderstandings in the article so like i'd rather not get too much into that but like there's like 25 pages worth of our answers uh, linked directly in the article now uh I do think it's like part of that is just a fundamental misunderstanding of how the the let's call it the pre-release period has worked. Right? And so the we've had essentially two phases. We've had the alpha phase and the beta phase. The alpha phase consisted of us literally making uh, orbs by hand in, in this office I'm actually in right now. And we had at any given point in time between 10 and 12 orbs or 15 orbs sometimes that were like actually uh, operatable. And so what we would do is we would take them around the world uh, to a bunch of different types of places to understand uh, what it would take to, for the project to succeed in different places. And so anything that, uh, that's like really obvious, like language or traditions or Wi-Fi signal or LTE, to some more non-obvious things like uh, the weather, right? How does the hardware and how does even like cold affect operations, uh, dust. And so there's all of these different set of just like different variables that we just had to understand to see like, hey, are people around the world interested in this? And if so, what is, the, what is actually the way you are able to operate in this? And so during that alpha, we had these uh, few orbs and in the middle of all of that, there was COVID going on. And so we we're like hopping around the world, going to a bunch of different places, um, something like 25 countries. Um, and we learned a ton, right? And um, once we were done with that, um, we said, okay, now that we've understood that, or like we've seen what is out there, let's choose almost like four archetypes that we think are representative of everything that we've seen. And let's just go really deep in them. And around the same time, we were finally had set up the orb factory. And so we had a lot more orbs to put up. And so what we were able to do was to say, okay, now we can go really deep into these four types of cities that we saw around the world. And we know that if we make WorldCoin works in those cities, we feel confident that we can scale it to the world based on what we've seen, based on weather, traditions, language, infrastructure. And so those ended up being uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina, uh, Lisbon in Portugal, Nairobi in Kenya, and, uh, and Bangalore in India. 
Uh, and we still had, uh, in, in the cities around those, we had a few orbs. But for the last or like eight months or 12 months, I don't even know at this point, we've gone really in-depth into these different places to make it work. Right? And so uh, in Lisbon, for example, more than 5% of the population has signed up. And so I think there is, there is generally, for example, a misunderstanding that a WorldCoin is focused for the developing markets. Even people that like WorldCoin, they go like, yeah, that's great because like, it, it will help uh, people in developing countries. It's actually not the case. We just think like crypto should be for all, including developing countries, right? And there are different challenges for operating in Mexico City than in like Monterrey in Mexico than in like New York. Um, and so we've had to like figure out how to navigate different local challenges. But uh, I would say the notion that we are somehow only in like poor countries for some ulterior motive, like that is just like A, factually not correct. And B, I don't even know what like the ulterior motive could be, to be honest. So look, we are in the process of like wrapping up this, this beta. And, uh, and then as soon as we, as WorldCoin launches, then we will actually uh, deploy orbs a lot more, a lot more broadly around the world. And so that's, that's like generally what's happened during the pre-release. Have there been mistakes? Sure. Like many, uh, but I don't think any, anywhere near uh, the degree to which like uh, some people think. Awesome. Um, maybe one closing question. Uh, do you have a white hat program? Can people get orbs to try to hack them um, and find all the flaws? Are you, are you uh, open to these kinds of things? Can people ask you for orbs? So people can definitely ask us for orbs. We're actually in the process of finalizing like a, an official program that will be posted on the site for different parts of the stack. Uh, we have already worked behind the scenes on like, many, many audits and many, many white hack um operations let's call it behind the scenes so like happy to like collaborate with anyone uh, they can just reach out to security at worldcoin or at tools for humanity dot um, com and um and, and people will get back there but uh but yeah generally super excited to work with the community on this Thiago, this has been uh, a real pleasure and it's always best to talk Uh, directly to the people uh, instead of talking about them. I feel um, I've learned a lot um, and uh, I'm, I'm super excited um, that you took the time to talk to us. I'm sure there are going to be other community members that want a piece of you and uh, ask you probably uh, a different set of questions. Uh, I'm glad um, that you were here today and very grateful that you found Common Ground with me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Florian. And like what I would say is, I think like at this point it's very, very clear that in new, this new world that we're going, there will be something like WorldCoin, whether it's a proof of person or the digital money. I hope that that happens to be in a private, decentralized and open source way. And that's what we're building here. Um, but uh, the future is coming and uh, we'll have a lot of fun in the coming years.